Welcome to the High Finance Podcast, where we hop on the cannabis roller coaster and meet the top players and thought leaders from Oregon and around the world. What does it take to start a cannabis business? Learn from the rising stars in the cannabis industry about the economic and financial realities, challenges, and opportunities in this fast-growing sector. No smoke and mirrors here as we learn what's working and what's not. The High Finance Podcast isn't about hippies, incense, and lava lamps. It's about tremendous opportunity, hyper-growth, and blazing new trails into the future. Welcome to the High Finance Podcast. Hi, welcome to High Finance. This is Megan Wallstatter. Hi, my name is Nick. And today we have John Magliano again with us, and he's going to be talking to us a little bit or a lot about 280E. Um, We probably won't even be able to cover everything because it's so comprehensive. Um, So with that, John, I'll turn it over to you. I would love for you to just give us kind of like a... Give us the context of 280. I want to say brief, but that seems like it's a already <laughs> not a cool Yeah. Okay. So section 280E is a Internal Revenue Code section that essentially says if you traffic, and that's a defined term, which means sell on a regular basis in a commercial setting, if you traffic in a Schedule One or Schedule Two substance under the Federal Controlled Substances Act that all otherwise allowable deductions and credits for ordinary and necessary business expenses are not allowed. That is a significant impediment Hmm. to the profitability of people that touch the weed, like growers or traffickers because they sell the pot, processors process and sell the, the cannabis derivative. So it's a huge issue from a tax perspective. It's also a gateway issue because what happens with Section 280E is that if you get audited by the IRS, the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to look at your operations. And uh, in that, because a lot of people are not entities, they could be looking at your personal tax returns. And many of the people in the cannabis area have not filed income tax returns for years because it's a cash basis business. Mm That will be problematic. You could be subject to charges for income tax evasion for not filing your returns. The other thing that can happen during audits is the IRS gets an in-depth look at your business. And the federal agencies and state agencies talk to each other. If the in the course of the audit it is discovered that you have irregularities in your business, improperly reporting inventory, and those kinds of things that are required by state cannabis law, and it finds its way to the state, you could be subject to not only state prosecution, but remember the Cole Memorandum that protects us under pro- prosecutorial discretion from federal prosecution is premised on strict compliance with state marijuana laws. So. 280E is a real issue in much more than just the tax sense. It can open up other areas for investigation and potential liability. So I just want to ask, just just to step back a bit, what was the foundation for the basis of even pushing this forward? Is it just another way to get this into the federal level? No, that's a great question. So let me tell you about the history of Section 280E because it's fascinating to me. There was a uh, drug dealer named Edmondson, and what he did was he got caught for selling methamphetamine, coke, and pot. He was a big dealer. Now, a lot of people don't know that if you get caught as a dealer, you still have to file a federal income tax return because you have to report all income, illegal or otherwise, or you're evading tax. 
So what happened was, as he was a cash basis taxpayer, mm-hmm. he had a business of selling drugs. And when he got prosecuted, uh, he hired a very good lawyer, and the lawyer made the following argument to the government and the IRS that was trying to get him for income tax evasion. They said, um, you know, you're in the business of doing this, but because it's illegal, we're not going to allow any of your ordinary and necessary business expenses. The court found there was no basis for that, and they ended up giving him things like mileage, entertainment expenses, food, uh, scales and equipment that were used in his business. All of these had to be substantiated, and he did. He even got the home office deduction for the use of his home. Well, needless to say, after the case and the allowing of these uh, items of business expenses against his income, his illegal income, Congress was very angry, and they passed 280E, to hmm. prohibit people from taking advantage of the legitimate business expenses if you are an illegitimate or illegal uh, trafficking business. Okay. In 1981, is that when that? About. About that. Good, okay. Uh-huh. Thanks. Um, so regular business costs. So I'm a business owner, and I am deeply affected by 280E, so I'm sitting here inside of my head rattling off all of the, those, what that means. Why don't you go into a little bit more detail from your perspective what that means? Yes, it's things like utilities, mm-hmm. labor, yep. rent, lease costs, depreciation, all of those, uh, all of those expenses – that, again, one would normally be able to take if you were a legitimate business. Now, I have to make, I'm sorry to make everybody a tax attorney here, but I have to make a very important distinction. Uh, in our, under our constitutional law, uh, when they enacted the 16th Amendment for income taxes, you, in order for there to be a tax on income, you first have to derive what your gross income is. And so in order to do that, you have to take in your gross receipts. That's mm-hmm. what you've received. Mm-hmm. But you have to be given, as a matter of constitutional law, you have to be given the right to offset the gross receipts by your cost of goods sold. Yeah. So once your investment in the cost of goods sold is subtracted from gross receipts, we then have gross income. Mm-hmm. And after you have gross income, then you begin to take away the deductions which are allowable to that business. Yes. So in an illegal business, even like pot, if you're caught with uh, cannabis or methamphetamine or LSD and you file an income tax return, you will be allowed from what you received, your gross receipts, to subtract the cost of the LSD or the pot or the cocaine. Mm -hmm. Then what's left over, you will be taxed on because you will not get the benefit of all of the other things like salaries, etc. Okay. Shango is the new name for cannabis in America, and we're pleased to welcome them as a high finance sponsor. Shango is one of the top cannabis cultivators, processors, and sellers in Oregon. They are constantly growing the brand's retail market footprint and wholesale network of independent dispensaries, and they are poised to launch operations in new state markets across the country. Shango is recognized by the nationwide media as an expert cannabis authority. Their products, customer service, and retail shopping experience are setting the standards for the cannabis industry. 
and they are committed to customer education, child safety, and the responsible use of all cannabis products. Visit GoShango.com and find out why Shango is ready to become a major force in the cannabis industry and America's first and finest cannabis brand. So, you know, for a dispensary, I know for our for our accounting every year, I have to do a time study where I sit and time the transactions of where my employees actually begin trafficking. Because anything that's linked to inventory management is linked to cost of goods sold at that point. So it's very complicated as a dispensary owner to be able to put together a tax prep um, and have that be accurate and and then divide up the time my employees spent find average times. And then, you know, there are certain employees that are just solely managing inventory or dealing with inventory. So those are pretty easy. But then, you know, you get into these percentages and ratios. So as far as like a grower or a processor is concerned, my understanding is that there's a little less trafficking on that end because more time can be allocated to cost of goods sold. A little bit, let me say it a little bit different, but you're correct. I would correct. love for you to say your, it differently. Your concept is correct. <laughs> but what you see in with... Uh, what you mean is that with growers, there is a greater ability to allocate the indirect costs mm-hmm. of production to the cost of goods sold. So, for instance, let me give you a process, an example for a processor. In order to make processed marijuana, we there, there's no dispute that when we buy the leaf, the trim, and when we buy the flowers, that's we're buying the raw materials. That's our cost of goods sold. Sure. Mm-hmm. We're also going to acknowledge that the labor it takes to convert that into oil is direct is an indirect cost sure. that should go into a cost of goods sold of the oil, the yes. extract. We can also agree, I believe, that the electricity that the machine uses or whatever the power source is to process is a cost indirectly that goes into the into that because it's necessary because it's necessary yeah. and so is the expense of machinery yeah. that goes into that yeah. Very and, there's, and so all of these indirect costs become allocable to the cost of goods sold which then gets re- taken off of your gross receipts and then unfortunately you're subject to uh to tax there's unlike any other businesses we've said there's no ability to take off the other things like sales and marketing expense that has nothing to do with the cost of the good that's promoting right. the sale of a legal substance. It is not <laughs> part of making that. But isn't this? It's almost like they want to get their cake and eat it too. They, to, to, they've got to have the full production from beginning to end to be able to make this occur. So why not incur zero to a hundred percent of everything? Because they are. So as a tax attorney, mm. the rule is that. Deductions are a matter of legislative grace, and you have to fully meet every letter required for that particular deduction. And 280E says, I'm sorry, you don't get that. And the rules about cost of goods sold are in Section 263A, and I believe it's 471. And this is where a very good accountant is required. These are subspecialties about aggressive allocations. And as a matter of fact, I have an acronym that I coined called SAD. It's very sad that we have to do this. And it's a, and and what it stands for, it's it's a way to minimize the impact of Section 280E. First of all, you segregate, you segregate your operations, and those things which are trafficking and which are not, so that you can take advantage of of deductions of expenses. 
that are allocable to the non-trafficking portion of your business. Okay. okay? Mm -hmm. The other one is A, allocation, aggressive allocation to cost of goods sold. And we've been through that a little bit. Be as aggressive as you can in putting components in there. The third is D, diversify your business and your streams of income so that you have other sources of income to show and that you're not only a trafficker. Nice. Because that is critical in the two seminal cases in this area, the Olive and the Champs case, which the court held specifically that just because you're a single business, integrated business, does not mean that if you have trafficking and non-trafficking portions of your business in terms of income and expense, that you will be disallowed those legitimate expenses for the non-trafficking part. So all this becomes critical. I will also tell you that it is clearly a strategic and competitive advantage for people to use highly educated, trained professionals to uh, structure their businesses in a manner to minimize 280E over those that don't. And when I speak on this, I actually have a slide that shows if you're just don't don't do anything to uh, minimize the impact of Section 280E, your tax your effective tax rate could be 85% compared to your competitors at 35%, wow. and that you're putting yourself at a huge disadvantage. Yep. So let's touch a little bit on some how do how do you mitigate with your company some of the effects of 280E? Okay, well, for us, it's not since I represent a large public company um, as as one of my my main client. Um, it's it's all about structuring to minimize 280E. So what do we do? And, and other companies. We don't necessarily need to talk to, to about mine. Sure. In general. In yeah. general. general. So when you have a complex companies, company that does, for instance, maybe growing, processing, retailing, one of the things you can do, for instance, is to, I've set up a, or recommend setting up, if there's mach expensive machinery involved, you set up a leasing company. Mm -hmm. the, the machinery will be purchased by the leasing company and then leased to the, in this case, the extraction company. Now, in a legitimate, and there's legitimate business reasons for doing that because machinery is not trafficking and, <laughs> and uh, processing is. And clearly, in terms of risk mitigation, Having the machinery inside the same business that does the extraction is subjecting that equipment to potential loss if the, if the uh, company that's extracting isn't complying with the law. They mm -hmm. could forfeit it. Okay. So having a separate company mitigates that risk. There are other advantages that can be done. But when you have a separate company, you can also charge more than just the cost of the lease. In this high-risk uh, high business, it's not uncommon in the market research I've done to charge 25% or more above the cost of this because of the risk factor that this company might not pay and other, other things in the cannabis business, the risk of legislation, et cetera. And that cost of that machinery is allocable to cost of goods sold, okay. which reduces the amount subject to the high, or the mm -hmm. high income tax because of no disallowance of the deduction and is at a lower income tax over here. And so this is a, becomes a game of structure for complicated businesses. I don't recommend this for smaller single companies because if you're just a single company, then you have to do things, Megan, like you're doing. Keeping track of the square footage, only having trafficking done in this part, having 
employee's job descriptions say that you are not to touch the pot <laughs> or you are only touching it. Yes. And that makes yep. it easier to justify. Uh, having other activities on other portions, having other sources of incomes like lifestyle products, artwork, pipe and paraphernalia, those are all independent income streams that are not trafficking. So in the smaller single business, those are the kinds of things that you do. In the larger business, it's about structuring. I will say this, it is still, it is not without risk because the IRS, if you have a single entity and all of your income is derived, all of the income is derived only from trafficking, mm -hmm. you're going to have a hard time justifying that this setup that I told you with equipment and everything else and all these other leased employees and all these fancy things that, and, 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 and uh, companies that own intellectual property, so I'm going to license you my brand names and all these things that are allocable mm. uh, potentially as indirect costs. If you only have one source of income from your trafficking, that could be a problem. It, it, I'm not saying that you would lose, but it becomes problematic, which is why my company, and I will talk about that, our, for instance, our machinery company, we actually lease machinery out to other people. That's a okay. separate source of income. Mm -hmm. That's where the diversify comes in. Correct. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, we have five companies right now. So I totally, uh, yeah, I'm like, yep. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very common to do that. That diversification and that that segregation is that's where the yep. the multiple companies is the S of the. It's sad. sad that we have yeah. to do this, but we it do. <laughs> but we do. I have to pay a lot of money so that I can do this. So, I would love to. You know, we've been going back and forth. We were advised one way. Now we're being advised another way about where our employees should be for the dispensary, for our retail. You know, are we leasing those employees or, you know, how does that work? Like, where where do we fall with that? And it gets a little trickier, I think, with the retail end about some of those lease agreements. Um, it does. It does. So, I know, can you speak to a little bit about those, some of those complexities for us? Okay, sure. So, first of all, you've got to figure out, leasing companies, I want to say, provide a valuable service in this industry, in my opinion, mm -hmm. because they vet the employees. Um, I've been in this industry for quite a bit now. I've seen some of the issues that we have, and a lot of the workforce uh, is not a traditional workforce with traditional workforce values, et cetera. It's changing because people are getting weeded out. But when you have, if you try to do the hiring on your own, I guess you figure it out after a while. But these professional companies, they have it down to a science. That's where they make their living, and mm -hmm. they can send you good people that. Uh, you know, can do the job and they're going to show up for work and they're not going to miss work and et cetera. So the, with dispensaries, after having said that, so that's one benefit of these professional leasing organizations. Uh, the other thing is that in complex companies where uh, you are allocating cost of goods sold, I've always advocated use of my own uh leasing company poes are called professional employers right uh, yeah we have one uh, mm -hmm. yeah and you set it up yourself because right. again you can charge more than because you're allowed to charge make a profit in your business mm -hmm. and you're and you're charging for benefits and a profit and that's typically more than an employer would pay okay. and so again you're in in a business where these where these um employees like in processing or in growing if their, if their labor is allocable to cost of goods sold, once again, 
We've got cost of goods sold being higher and pulled off to a related company that then doesn't have to pay as, as high a tax as this one over here, but yet we're lowering the 280E impact because we're pulling off more income. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first question with professional uh, employer organizations, I should have said PEO, not POEs, but professional employer organizations is, is it is the employee base going to be allocable to cost of goods sold? If it can be and you want to deal with the complexity of setting up your own, I would tell you to do it, okay? <laughs> if it's not worth it or they're not allocable to cost of goods sold, um, then it's a, different, it's a different issue because you're not going to get the benefit of being able to write that off because it right. just becomes a business expense. Right. Well, and, and one of the things that I've been hearing as, you know, as the – industry matures and people are getting a little bit more savvy or learning from, you know, other people's mistakes, all of the above, um, is that, you know, if the employees are, st- if the, em- if, you know, if your employees are still trafficking, even if they're in moved into a different company and is that company then liable for 280E because the employees are still trafficking regardless of who they're employed by. Now, see, that's, Megan... Is that um, more complex? <laughs> it, but it, it's more complex, but I don't agree with that. I think that if you keep track of the time when the person is trafficking versus non-trafficking, mm-hmm. and if they have a different job description when they're over here than when they're over in the trafficking company, then I think that that's not going to stand. I, but if you're saying to me, so what kind of a business are you talking about where someone is trafficking on one side and trafficking on the other and 280 is an impact is that from one dispensary to another or what's the context well just an administrative service company that employs the employees and they lease them out to the retail end the administrative company that's a professional uh employer organization can be structured so that they are not uh the trafficker the employee is because really what it, the, the term that really works better for that yeah, Megan, is called love, co-employment. I love it. So like, when they're over here, the, the person is co-employed by the employer that's trafficking. Mm-hmm. That is clearly, um, unless it's allocable to cost of goods sold, that's not going to be a deductible expense. Mm-hmm. However, uh, as far as the uh, income derived from the employer, that is, the professional employer organization is not receiving income from the traffic is not engaged in trafficking it's the same with megan it's the exact same issue as me me when i told you when you set up a leasing company mm-hmm. and the leasing company leases to the trafficker is the tra- is the leasing company is the lease payments on the equipment trafficking income no, no. it's leasing income it's, yep. the poe income that you get is income from the services of the employee, not the trafficking services that he's providing to the employer. Right, 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 right. This portion of our show is brought to you by Cultivated Industries, experts in cultivation and extraction. Cultivated Industries combines decades of growing expertise with innovative technologies and practices to deliver award-winning flour and extracts to the cannabis marketplace. The company's cultivation and extraction facilities are integrated under one roof to ensure optimal quality, safety, and transparency in all stages of production. Cultivated Industries utilizes eco-friendly practices such as the use of beneficial insects to mitigate harmful pests and relies solely on renewable energy to power its state-of-the-art facility located in Portland, Oregon. To learn more about their products and find a store locator, visit their website, cultivatedindustries.com.
yeah, it just gets really complicated when mitigating those these penalties because, you know, especially I mean the retail level, it's it's much more you know there well more there's a higher percentage of that time being that can be allocated to trafficking because I mean once your employee starts communicating with a customer. Trafficking begins at that moment. Unless they're also trying to sell them pipes and T-shirts and artwork uh, and all these other lifestyle kinds of things, it gets more murky. But I would tell you to always have them trying to sell, sell, sell. Sell other stuff, too. So that's really interesting. So as soon as they sell, so say, you know, so a customer comes in and they want to buy product from the dispensary of cannabis product. Mm -hmm. And then they also want to get the piece of glass mm-hmm. and a lighter and mm-hmm. whatever else, you know, accoutrements, any lifestyle stuff. So how would you allocate that sale? What, like, would you would you actually sit there and say, this is the part that went, to in, that went to trafficking and this is the part that didn't? Okay, so first, let's. I'm a very practical lawyer. So we're raising some very good issues that unless the IRS is sitting there listening to you, or no one's going to know. Right, so right, right, right. what do you okay. do? What do you do? Well, the first thing you do is, as I said, the store is set up so that lifestyle and everything else that's non-trafficking should be on a distinct location, separate mm-hmm. location of the store. And it okay. separate yeah. means maybe there's a line. Maybe it's this square footage, whatever, but it's separate. It's sure. not commingled amongst the buds and everything else. Totally. So yep. when what, what do you say about allocating the time? I wouldn't try, I guess I wouldn't be so specific with the time. When your person is, if you're a larger dispensary and someone is on call as a bud tender and they're, mm-hmm. that's their job description mm-hmm. and they're supposed to work from 8 to 11, I'm not going to try to carve out the two minutes that they spoke trying to sell the glass to you. Right. But I am going to try to minimize their time that they're doing the bud tending. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Or, that, mm-hmm. or I'm going to say that 50% of their time is in their job description is allocable to trafficking and the other is the, the glassware. If you can keep track of it, great. If not, I think you're going to be pretty good. I will tell you that from the 280E audits that I have been involved with, they are a, a, a exercise in negotiation. It is not, uh, it's getting more sophisticated now with the service, but basically on these smaller dispensary items, it just becomes, you know, how credible, what kind of, how are your overall records? Is there a lot of credibility to your business records and and how you're running things and your professionalism and all those? Believe me, an auditor takes that into account. If you're sloppy, you can't justify, you don't have job descriptions, you haven't tried to keep time, you don't have separation. These kinds of things will lead to the auditor to want to push more aggressively towards non-allowance of the, the business expenses or the allocations that you have wanted. And so at the end of the day, it becomes for me, an, a, you know, what can we live with and what can we negotiate to get this thing done and move on? Move mm-hmm. on. Yep. So you've been a part of some 280E audits. Yes. How can you speak a little bit about just... No, they just go, there's nothing to speak about other than record keeping is huge. Sure. And uh, it's mainly dispensaries because dispensaries are incredible uh, sources of cash for the service because people are have not historically um, had the and, and still I, I believe not everyone is spending uh, on legal legal and accounting like you are and advice and I completely agree and, with you and, and, and that's why yeah. uh, there's still a lot of mom and pops and if these guys get popped, um, 
no pun intended, uh, and there's an audit, then they're going to suffer the consequences. And it does. It becomes one of record-keeping and credibility, which is why it becomes negotiating. Right, because this is what I deem as good, accurate record-keeping. Right, we're going to accept that. That looks good. You can't, but, you know, you can't prove any more than that. This is what I think. Well, this is what we think. and yeah. Right. Well, I, I want to ask you something that speaks to that. So basically, um, it's already a rough roller coaster of a ride, this whole industry. And this, if anything, is making it a bit more convoluted than it was before. So, I mean, <laughs> absolutely, nicely speaking. Um, so, at one point, you've got uh, it helps to drive innovation and creative accounting, and people have to step up to the plate, which is which is good, I guess. But at the other end of the scale, isn't it also scaring off the grassroots movements of people trying to start up their own businesses who don't have the time, whereabouts, knowledge, or money to to really. Um, meet those requirements for setting up creative accounting or or proper structures so you're raising a great societal issue okay <laughs> because first of all even though i would say we have momentum to allow the cannabis business it looks that way you have to remember it's still federally illegal mm-hmm. it's still illegal in most states and so this idea of isn't it keeping people out and whatever it is, but there's a lot of people that would say that's not bad um, because we don't really approve of this. Okay, okay, so that's one group. Okay. Then there's the other group that's saying, look, if we allow this, and I think this is the majority of people, this only survives and makes sense to us because we got to get rid of the black market. Black market means mm. crime. Black mm-hmm. market means no tax. And so if you can't meet the bar... Yep. To participate legitimately in the business, then you shouldn't be in there. It's like any other business that has, uh, like like um, a lawyer, where you have to get, you know, you got to go to all these years of school, and you have to be licensed, and you've got to take training. I mean, not a lot of people can afford to take all the training we have to do just to keep your license every three years. Wow. You got to report. Mm-hmm. And there's better examples in industries that have to have constant regulation, like. You know, um, nuclear, who's going to, you know, sorry, you don't want to have the testing and you don't want to be able to have billion dollar plants and whatever. Well, you don't meet the bar for the industry. So while I feel sorry for the that we're not wide open, I think that society is not in a place yet. We're just willing to disregard the, the structures because we want we want this industry to grow. And that's only going to happen through strict compliance in my sure. part till we're to a point where it's <coughs> alcohol. And look where alcohol is still pretty strictly yeah. very right? strictly regulated yep. yeah um oh my gosh it's so fascinating i'm like i've never thought that i would be this entertained by 280e ever but i <laughs> could just sit here for hours marinating with all these details um yeah so i think also there's a little bit of a i think there's still a little bit of a, the the rogue mentality in cannabis where there are people who invest money in companies like John's and work with many different lawyers and experts. And then there's the type of people that are, you know, there's still some of the the roots of cannabis, I guess, that are still out there that are saying, oh, it's okay, I'm not going to deal with that. And when they, when I don't have to worry about that until they come for me. Mm. So there, there, there's less of them. And like John had referred to, they're getting weeded out a little bit, that they're still... It's still let me there, tell you why that's changing. Sprinkles. No, yes. let me tell you why that's changing. I want it to change. And here's the great <laughs> here is the great irony. The irony is that through acceptance mm-hmm. in the recreational space, yes, it is going to force compliance. Why? Because the recreational space now you can't do it without a license. 
if you don't have a license, you will be federally prosecuted. And are you going to take that risk when all you have to do is apply for a license? And once you've applied for that license and you have to file income tax returns and you have to pay sales tax if you're a dispensary in our state, the state has a vested interest now of going after and finding all these income streams to pay for schools and everything else. And they will be vigilant, every state that does this. And what will happen is it'll force compliance. And I believe, I believe that the guys that have been lifelong cannabis growers and everything else that have finally said, I can live with this. If there's people down the road that are selling and not complying and not having to deal with the costs and everything, I think they're going to get turned in. They're either going to get caught by the state because they're not paying their fair share or complying yeah. with the industry, or other guys are going to say, hey, why should you be able to bootleg Yeah, and exactly. I've got to pay it legitimately? That's not fair. You're taking profit out of mine. You should pay for what I have to pay. It's, I, I've heard it, and it's I can see it. Oh, it happens at the dispensary level all the time with compliance issues. People are calling OHA all the time and telling them on their neighbors of like, oh, this, this shop is doing this. How come I can't? Uh-huh. Or this shop Perfect. just moved in, and they're taking my sales. And it's like, well, mm. a 1,000 feet is a 1,000 feet. Like, what what is the OHA supposed to do about regulating your sales footprint, you know? So... The amount of social work calls that the OHA now gets, you know, or or I should say those are more like police calls, you know, you know, but it is it's definitely I can see that trend. It'll be really interesting to see how that shakes out in the next five years. I wanted to make sure, too, though, that there's another issue with 280E that people don't think about very much that I see all the time. And I just want to get that out there. Um, a lot of people still in this growing cannabis business. I hope I think of it. I hope I thought of it. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think you have to worry about okay, it unless okay. you're taking investor funds. So oh, here's right. the problem. <laughs> For people that are growing, you know, a lot of money is pouring into Oregon because we have an open system. There's no residency requirements. And so you can come in, you can get the license, and money is pouring into the state like you can't believe. And in order to take on investment money, you have to comply with the securities laws, okay? Sure. And yeah. the problem that I see is that part of the, even with accredited investors, most of us lawyers will make the appropriate risk disclosures. When you're providing that investor with financial statements and you're a trafficker, you better be showing the effect of 280E and not alloc- not deducting business expenses and everything else that is a, can be it will be a mis- material misstatement in connection with the security mm. and you could end up having to pay back mm. the investor's money in the event that things don't go right wow so all one of the first things and that's also needs to be a risk disclosure this is subject to 280E and so you want to make sure that uh, those Financials and I always use an accountant, and he goes through, and we change them all the time, so you're not overstating your income. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. same thing applies to real estate, where you provide a landlord financials that you're going to do. If yeah. I represent a lot of them, and if they're not affected for 280E, it's a misrepresentation to the landlord, and if, you know, mm-hmm. and potential can cancel the lease. Another super important aspect for 280E, unfortunately. If you have a business that's potentially subject to 280E, it should not be a pass-through entity like a sub-S corporation or an LLC. And the reason for that is if you are understating your income and not properly taking effect of Section 280E and you have a pass-through entity, the IRS can come after the distributions or the income that pass through to you without tax to get you to make up the difference. 
if you have a C corporation that is a single level entity that pays its own tax, mm -hmm. you will be insulated yes. from that if there is a mistake at the corporate level about how much tax should have been taken sure. out. Sure, higher tax rate with the C Corp, as far as a little bit more lenient, but that's the payoff, You're exactly. Correct. It's the security, it's knowing, being able to go to bed at night. Yes, C Corps help people sleep, <laughs> and cannabis. Is the C for cannabis? No, yeah. <laughs> they should change that. <laughs> this portion of our show is brought to you by Satchel, a boutique cannabis dispensary proudly located in the Arbor Lodge neighborhood of North Portland. Satchel strives to create a professional, clean, and comfortable atmosphere for its medical and recreational customers. They offer premium products and handcrafted goods from artists and producers. Whether you're new to cannabis or a seasoned customer, their knowledgeable tenders will help you select the right strains and products for your individual preferences and needs. To find out more about Satchel Dispensary and to discover their discounts and deals, find them on Leafly.com or visit their website at satchelpdx.com. What's in your satchel? You mentioned earlier record keeping and how important record keeping is. Um, and I'm just thinking back about 10 years ago when everybody had like, you know, burn piles and didn't keep receipts and had like, or receipts in a shoebox, you know. Um, what do you recommend to people as far as so good record keeping? What does that look like to you? How many years? Oh, well. And uh, what do we save? You, <laughs> you know? the, the rule of thumb for tax lawyers is you keep six years. Okay. And the reason for that is, okay, uh, in, under our income tax rule, rules, mm -hmm. if you uh, never file a return or you file a fraudulent return, there is no statute of limitations and the IRS can come back 30, 40, whatever it is, back forever. So the first thing I always advise people is always file a return, always file a non-fraudulent return. How's that? Right. And then that starts the statute of limitations running. There is a six-year statute of limitations for the IRS to come after you if you have what's called a 25% or more understatement of, of a gross income. Okay. So if you leave 25% or more or don't report it on your return, they can go all the way back for six years. Wow. Highly unusual. The general rule is that the IRS can go back anytime they want for up to three years from the date of that the return was filed. Okay. Okay. So that's where... The tax, that's where the tax lawyers say, keep it for six years and you're good, unless you file the fraudulent return. Gotcha, because you have that window, that buffer. That right. makes sense. So what does it mean for good record keeping? It means keeping everything. That's what I was afraid I, it you really, were It say. really does. <laughs> it really does. There's no excuse in today's modern age. They have software scanners now that actually you can scan your your uh, receipts or whatever it is, and it goes that the copy of that receipt goes directly into a QuickBooks account, mm -hmm. and it ke saves a copy of the receipt. Or, you know, I hate to say it, accountants out there, but at a minimum, even shove it in a shoebox or whatever, but keep all of the receipts. Now, best practices of, is, of course, that you have a bookkeeper that, uh, uh, you know, consolidates and puts all of these receipts into an order. And then they put it in the back of the ledger and you have everything. If anybody pulls something out, you can see exactly where it is. Cannabis is going that way. It, you're going to have to do that. I think with the uh, requirements that are applicable to the rec area that we're seeing with seed to sale and all these other software programs, um, I will tell you that the bank that uh, my public company has, they can go anytime it, during the day, anytime they want. We have an FDIC banking relationship, as you know, mm -hmm, and have mm -hmm, had for mm -hmm. a year. And our bank can go in and see 
what our sales were for that day wow. and what the deposits are so they know there's no black market mm-hmm. leakage. They see right. the legal sales, right. in quotes, legal sales coming, and that's the dep- amounts that are getting deposited that's into tight. the bank. Wonderful. I, I know there's also those apps for accounting and tracking receipts exactly. as well for people. Yeah, the, the tools are out there, for sure. Right, it's just saving all those individual receipts. <laughs> yes. Um, well, yeah, and I feel like that's that's a big learning curve for everybody. Is is really like learning like, oh, every receipt you really meant every receipt because I still find myself like this is the one I need to save. Okay, I need to remember that. You know, because you think about your general invoices and then you have like your day to day expenditures. Like every time your employee goes to make a new key at Avoy or whatever it is, that receipt should be being saved you know well that's why megan in my business i use a credit card for everything i do and we do too and american express keeps seven years worth of incomes uh, of statements for you now uh so there's an extra one there but every every receipt everything is description is on that uh you pay a little bit for that card but it's it certainly simplifies and then i love at the end of the year at quarterly and at the end of the year they do an allocation uh, to the various income expense items, and then your bookkeeper has an easier time Beautiful. as well. Yes, I know that is. They have a. It's a great interface working with the, um, the American Express. Companies. Hard to do that in the cannabis business, though, when they don't allow. Uh, you know, uh, the banks won't bank you, mm-hmm. and so you can't have credit cards for that business. And if you end up using your personal credit cards, that raises other issues. So. Yeah, that does not keep the lines clear. Right. Yeah, that makes things a lot a very murky. So you mentioned publicly traded company how does how do you know working with investors but you guys are publicly or golden is publicly traded Mm -hmm. so how does that layer work with 280e does that make it even more complicated or no okay um because we're publicly traded we are a c corporation Mm -hmm. and so uh the way that most public companies are structured is you have a holding company and then all of the various operating subsidiaries in the different states are operated with a separate sort of group of companies, if you will, because there's so many idiosyncrasies. Washington has residency laws, Oregon doesn't. Uh, They have different tax structure than we have. Uh, There's different risks associated with that. And so it makes sense to have separate companies. Having said that, I do uh, recommend uh, for larger companies setting up uh, basic companies. So for instance, uh, with my large company, I have I set up a Nevada corporation which owns all of the intellectual property of okay. the company. Nevada's rated consistently number one or two best places to do business. It doesn't have a state income tax. And so all of the brand names, recipes, processes, and other sorts of intellectual property that the company owns are housed in there. And then when people want to use our brand names, for instance, in different states and uh, or, or our recipes to make our oils or whatever it may be, then you have to pay me a royalty fee and you enter into a licensing agreement with that nice. Nevada company. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not only does it, again, um, potentially impact 280E, potentially depending what it is. So a process is probably an indirect cost of cost of goods sold. Uh, a brand name probably isn't, but I'll, there's accountants I know that will take a different position on that. But the idea is to structure things in a way that not only take advantage of minimizing 280E, but also have to make sense from a corporate structural. You can't mm-hmm. you can't just let the finance be the sole determinant of corporate structure and policy because business is so much more complicated than that. It really is. Are you saying there's going to be a follow-up to 280E? There's going to be another, or is this 
Okay. I'll Great point. Yeah. <laughs> so is there going to be? It's interesting. About four weeks ago, the DEA, the, the uh, mm. Drug Enforcement Drug Administration, announced that they were looking at potentially rescheduling marijuana this summer. So all of us are watching because that's the easy fix. If you take marijuana off schedule one and two, so mm -hmm. it can't fall to two, yeah. or we still have the problem, yeah. okay. get it off of D. one or two, one and yep. two, two eighty E no longer applies. Exactly. Wow. And so they're looking at doing that. There have been several proposals in Congress focused on that. In my opinion, that's the easy fix. There's others that have uh, said that they want to amend two eighty E to say that. Uh, you know, 280 doesn't apply if you're operating in compliance with uh, state law. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Be easier yeah. just to, yes. what, what, what we know yep. based on, and, and you know what, let me just take a minute. So Schedule 1 in the, uh, in the Controlled Substances Act is for substances that have no known medical use in the United States, that's the big one, mm -hmm. plus, you know, highly addictive and high, high chance for abuse. Schedule 2 is known and, and by the way in schedule 1 you have things like LSD yeah. you have uh, yeah well, you know, and no. no cocaine in schedule 2 so yeah right. so all oh, all of the and marijuana in schedule 1 yeah. and then and and, her, and heroin, heroin in schedule 1 yeah. mm -hmm. so you go to schedule 2 and it's known medical benefits in the United States but highly addictive for abusive, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. It, the, that's where you have like cocaine, which is a, a numbing agent, and you have uh, you know uh, hydrocodone and oxycodone, oh, yeah. oxycodone and those yeah. right super addictive drugs. Where our nation's having a but problem with them, but there's a benefit, a yep. huge benefit, pain killing that's recognized yeah. mm -hmm. by the U.S. medical establishment. So you got to get them off of that. And knowing what we know, it really doesn't seem like cannabis belongs in either one or two, mm -hmm. right? Because alcohol isn't in one or two. It's, it's just is tobacco. Just, yeah. So I think that's the easy fix to get it off of one or two. Yep. Deschedule, not reschedule. Deschedule. Get right. it completely off of the schedule. Yeah. I could yeah. live. I could live with anything other than one or two. I w yeah. I would yeah. sleep even better at night right. knowing that. <laughs> yes, I know. Because then I could maybe not have nine companies to run <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> my life. Now, you would <laughs> you would ask before the mics went on about uh, there's a Harborside case with yes, 280E. Mm -hmm. It's actually, it's I don't believe it's Harborside, but it's the lawyer for Harborside, a right. guy named Wiseman or something like that that always seems to uh, find his way into Pop these up. cases. <laughs> now, I think that that is a loser case because yeah. California in the Champs case specifically held that even if you are providing medical marijuana pursuant to state medical marijuana authorized laws that it's still trafficking under section 280e so i don't know where the guy is going with this i think this that schedule one is very clear or uh, this 280e is very clear that if you violate either federal or state law and it's a schedule one or two substance under the csa i i, I don't think the guy's got a chance what do you think about um, Merkley's and Blumenauer's efforts um, with banking and with some of the 280E stuff that they're trying to push through at the federal level? Do you okay, feel I appreciate the effort, but let's see some results here on something. Give us something, guys. Um, I do, I do. I know how tough it is to get things through, but we're seeing a lot of talk, and maybe that's the beginning, and we've been talking for a year or so, but I would really like to see our guys take the lead, which means not just talking, let's get something in place. 
Yes, I agree. So last question for you. What is your prediction? How long will 280E be around cannabis for? Okay, so we all, uh, my disclaimer is, you know, what the heck do I know? Look into your uh, magic ball and tell us. <laughs> I'm guessing, uh, my guess is two years. Two years. Two years max. Okay. If we don't see descheduling this summer, I think two years. All right. Well, all right. I can live with that. Half, I'm, I'm already past two years, so I'm yeah. like, oh, that's nothing. We, <laughs> we've done that. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming on again. Our time has run out. Again, again thank you for having me, you guys. Such Appreciate a it. great way to fill our time is to have someone as amazing as yourself come on. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you. Have a great day. You've been listening to the High Finance Podcast, recorded weekly at the Bigfoot Podcast Studio in the heart of downtown Portland. Please tune in every week through iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Overcast, or the app of your choice. Subscribe, rate us, and please leave us a review on iTunes, and we may well read it on air. Change your thoughts and change your world. <laughs>